Introducing the presenters for um, our session, Can, Relativiz Can Relativism Bring Peace? An Atheist and a Theist Compare Notes, is Wally Cox from Virginia Beach, Virginia. He's a professor at Regent University and uh, just wrote a book called Tyranny Through Education. And it is in favor of the Separation Alliance. And he is looking for a publisher, hint, hint. Um, please welcome Wally Cox. Uh, good afternoon. It's my pleasure to introduce our discussants or contestants or whatever it turns out to be. <laughs> the title of our event, Can Relativism Bring Peace? An Atheist and a Theist Compare Notes. All I'm going to do is introduce these gentlemen. I really don't know how relativism is going to tie to separation, and I'm not going to try to figure out right now which one's the theist and which one's the atheist. <laughs> okay. So first, uh, I'll introduce you to Sheldon Richmond, closest to me. I'm sure, I'm sure you all recognize him. Sheldon is the editor of the Freeman uh, Ideas on Liberty, published by the Foundation for Economic Education. He's also senior fellow at the Future for Freedom Foundation. He's the author of the book, Separating School and State, How to Liberate America's Families. That's part of your membership benefit that we get, um, that book. Uh, he is also the author of the forthcoming book, Your Money and Your Life, Why We Must Abolish Income Tax, published by the Future Freedom Foundation. He was formerly senior editor at the Cato Institute and before that at the Institute of Humane Studies at George Mason University. He's written widely on a variety of topics, including education, population and the environment, federal disaster policy, international trade, the Second Amendment, American history, computer privacy, and the Middle East. His work has appeared in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Washington Times, Chicago Tribune, and numerous others. I have a feeling you wrote all of this. So. He has appeared on CNN's Crossfire and Both Sides with Jesse Jackson, CNBC's Business Insiders, and others. A former newspaper editor, he was graduated from Temple University in his hometown of Philadelphia. He and his three, he and his three, his three children are homeschooled. <laughs> Here's Sheldon. Thank you. I'm currently homeschooled, too, although I wasn't earlier in my life. Well, thank you very much. Nice to be here again. Uh, this is a, uh, this is a p patented uh, uh, Marshall Fritz uh, panel discussion. <laughs> uh, only he can think these things up. This is not going to be a debate, as far as I know. Uh, I didn't play the debate. I didn't bring the, uh, the verbal boxing gloves with me because uh, we're only comparing notes. Uh, and by that, I take it means we, we, you're going to find a broad area of agreement between me and uh, Herb Titus, which, which is fine. <clears throat> uh, relativism, I checked my American Heritage Dictionary. Uh, relativism, the, dic the definition was not whatever you want it to be. It didn't say, which I thought was kind of a contradiction. It said it's a theory that conceptions of truth and moral values are not absolute but are relative to the persons or groups holding them, <clears throat> which seems like a fairly faithful uh, definition. Of, uh, of this idea, which made me think that the idea of uh, education based on relativism is, is, a, is an absurdity, is a contradiction in terms, because if you think about what education is supposed to be, uh, it's what? It's the um, instilling of the love of learning, it's the uh, imparting of information, it's, a, it's several things. It's uh, uh, 
the quest for knowledge, all those things seem to imply a, an objective frame of reference, an objective reality which is discoverable by human reason. And if you cut that off, cut that idea, uh, independent reality, uh, off, you know, from, away from the idea of education, I don't know what education would mean if there's not an independent objective reality to be educated with reference to. I mean, think about it for a minute. What, what, what are you doing in the classroom or at home in a, in a homeschooling environment if there's not, I mean, it's the real world, it's the objective world that gives us something to learn and, you know, to learn about. And uh, I'm now talking not, not on the moral side of it, but simply on the, uh, uh, let's say, the metaphysical side of it. The fact is, the, thing, the point is that there's something out there to uh, learn, uh, which is independent of us. Uh, education seems, would seem to make no sense if it's premised on, on, on uh, relativism. Because then you wouldn't need education. You would then just, whatever you decide is true about anything is true by definition under the relativist uh, assumptions. And uh, education would become very, very different indeed um, if it would uh, have any meaning at all after that. But I don't uh, think it would. <clears throat> now, the, the uh, let me posit the opposite of relativism. It would be what I would think of as objectivism, uh, small o, no trademark sign after that. I'm not using now, at this point, Ayn Rand's uh, conception of objectivism, uh, but that, that would fall, I mean, hers is a particular philosophy that would fall under the general uh, category of objectivism, namely, uh, which, which has two components to it. One is that, in a metaphysical sense, there is a reality that's independent of us, that's uh, uh, discoverable, Although I suppose there are some variants of objectivism that would say there's a, there's a reality independent of us, but it's not discoverable. <clears throat> I suppose Immanuel Kant could be put into this category. There is something out there, some philosophers would say. Uh, it's independent of us, uh, but we don't really, we won't ever know what it is. It's just, it's inaccessible to us. That's not the view I'm espousing here. Uh, I want to add to the idea that there's an independent uh, world uh, that uh, it's also open to, to human reason. <clears throat> um, so the idea is that reality is objective. It's, it's, it exists despite our hopes, wishes, dreams. If there's a brick wall there and you decide you don't want to see it, you're going to bump into it anyway. It's going to impede your progress, uh, whether you like it or not, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. Uh, I think the real test for any philosopher who's a relativist, or any of the variants, a skeptic, let's say, is do they, here's the test, watch when they cross the street, do they look both ways before they cross the street? Uh, I, I always thought this was a very good common sense test of a philosopher's uh, sincerity when they, when they espouse these uh, doctrines of relativism and skepticism and, and other, any, any of the many variants uh, of denial that there is an uh, independent reality. Uh, do they do they look both ways before they cross the street? Because if you're a really devout relativist, there's no need. <laughs> now, of course, in some sense, uh, evolution and natural selection would quickly take its uh, course, and after a while, there wouldn't be many of those kinds of relativists left, would there? <clears throat> it'd be a form of uh, it wouldn't be I don't know if it'd be natural selection, but it'd be a form of selection. Now, the other side of objectivism, in the sense I'm using it now, again, small o. Uh, but it applies also to the, the capital O, objectivism, uh, is that uh, moral values are objective. 
in the sense that they are neither subjective or arbitrary or intrinsic. And, uh, and I'll use, the, let me quickly uh, tell you what I think those terms mean. Uh, intrinsic values, which sometimes uh, that term is often uh, used interchangeably with objective values, but I think, there, I think there's a difference. Uh, a value is something, it seems to me that when, when you identify something as a value, you're identifying a relationship between a thing or an idea uh, and a human agent, a valuer. I don't think there are values that are uh, that exist independent of valuers. Now, I'm not adopting relativism at this point because I can I, I can claim that there are characteristics that apply to all members of the, of the human race, and it, it's based on their nature as human beings, which is objective, and the objective nature of the things we're talking about. Water is objectively good for the class of things known as human beings. Actually, all living beings, but let's talk about human beings for now. Uh, why is water objectively good for, for human beings? Uh, uh, I'm not strictly talking about moral values at this point, obviously. There, there's a sense beyond morality that you could talk about water being good. I mean, it sustains life, which is a good. <clears throat> uh, it's something about the nature, our nature as physical beings, and the nature of water that makes that combination uh, enhance the life or further the life of human beings. So, it's, again, it's a relationship based on facts, not arbitrary things we've invented in the relativist sense, but, but actual facts about human beings and this stuff uh, that we call water. <clears throat> so it, that's a denial of the intrinsic theory. The intrinsic theory would say it's in the thing itself, not, not in relationship to any valuing agent, but just in the thing itself. The subjective theory would, would say values are simply arbitrary. Whatever you decide is good for you is good for you. It's kind of absurd. Uh, if we decided uh, today by some sort of mass delusion that uh, arsenic was uh, life enhancing, life and uh, it would lengthen our lives and make us uh, physically more fit, uh, that belief would have some manif objective manifestations. The price of arsenic might go up as we all ran out to buy some. In an economic sense, uh, it would be as if it were true in this very narrow sense. We would bid the price up because we all thought it was good for us but then we'd all proceed to kill ourselves. Uh, and our beliefs wouldn't change uh, that. The belief that it would extend our lives wouldn't change the fact that it would uh, kill us or certainly make us uh, sick. So, uh, again, if that's, that's the result of the combination of the natures of ar arsenic and our nature. Put them together and you don't get life enhancement or life extension, you get the death. Uh, uh, again, it goes back to the looking both ways before you cross the street. Uh, these are facts you can't just blink away. <clears throat> Now, can a, uh, well, I mean, how do we know there's an objective uh, reality out there? I mean, maybe, how do we know it's not just a figment of our imagination? Well, you know, there's a story of a uh, uh, freshman who was taking Philosophy 101 at, I think, Harvard. This is it's a true story. And uh, the student uh, went up to the professor one day and, and said, you know, can you prove to me that I really exist? And the professor, the Jewish professor, looked at the student and said, who's asking? <laughs> and there's a lot of wisdom in that answer. And answering a question with a question sometimes can be the most effective way to answer the question. Uh, because, there's this, because in a very fundamental sense, to ask a question about the world is to already presume a heck of a lot of information and a heck of a lot of knowledge. Uh, 
I mean, it does presume the existence of the questioner, the question, the person being questioned, and then a whole lot of other things. Uh, in other words, there's background information, there's uh, uh, axiomatic information, we can call it, that you can't uh, escape. I mean, Aristotle pointed out that the law of identity was something that to even attack, you had to adopt it. Because if you come up with a proof that the law of identity, and your bottom line of your proof is the law of, therefore the law of identity is false, that doesn't also mean the law of identity is true. But if the law of identity is false, then you know that line doesn't mean what we think it means because that depends on the law of identity. So to invalidate the law of you have to use the law of identity to uh, in, in, attempt to invalidate the law of identity. But that tells you something very very special about the law of identity that it, it must be in the nature of an axiomatic truth. Otherwise, you'd be able, be able to escape it. If you can't escape it. That tells us something. Uh, well, Rand and others have, have extended that to the very idea of there being an, ex, uh, an independent objective reality. To attack that, you have to use it. There's no way out of that. It's like being in this uh, you know, paper bag that you can't fight your way out of. That's just the way things are. So to mount an assault on the idea that there is objective reality and that we can have knowledge of it entails a very fundamental contradiction. Because, uh, aren't you, first of all, it seems to me you'd be stating an objective fact that there is no objective independently existing reality. Well, that's, if you're claiming that that's true, then you're claiming that's an independent objective fact that's true whether you like it or not. Well, you're, you're, you're endowing that statement with all the uh, characteristics of, uh, of, of my statement that there is an independent objective reality, which, of course, should go without saying, undercuts any claim of rel relativism. <clears throat> uh, you know, Descartes had the famous, uh, famous uh, apparent axiom, I think, therefore, I am. I mean, he tried to find the one true certain statement, and he felt he could doubt everything but the fact that he was doubting. Now, on the surface, that sounds, that sounds pretty persuasive. So he ends up with only the existence, you're only certain of one thing, the existence of your own consciousness. And uh, the rest of you could all be imagined. I can't doubt the fact that I'm imagining under Descartes' uh, system. But the, the fact is, I have no real reason to believe that all of you are existing. You could just be, you know, the result of uh, something I had to drink last night, I don't know, <laughs> or earlier. Um, the only thing I can't doubt is that, that I'm uh, imagining this, or th therefore that I am conscious of something. Now, uh, there's a problem with this. There's a problem with trying to work from the idea that you're conscious to the idea that there's a, there's a real world out there. In fact, it, it goes the other way. Uh, Descartes' approach was what is known as the primacy, primacy of consciousness. The opposing view, of course, would be the primacy of existence, or the primacy of reality. And uh, the, uh, the argument being that um, if there were no existing independent reality, there'd be no consciousness, because consciousness is consciousness of something. Uh, otherwise, the term, I don't know what the term would mean otherwise. Consciousness is radically dependent on something to be aware of. It's awareness. It's awareness of something. Take away all things to be aware of, you can't, there can't be awareness. And, and, uh, and if I can cite Rand here again, uh, that the, um, the idea of a consciousness which is conscious only of itself, again, is, is an impossibility. I mean, think about that for a second. Nothing to be conscious of except itself. I mean, it's, it would be a, how can a contentless, contentless consciousness even know 
that it, that it exists. It, it ends up just dissolving away. So we, ha we're, we are stuck with the opening fact that there is a, there's a real world out there that's, that, uh, that we have to discover. It's there, independent of us, and now our job is just to go out and learn what it is. <clears throat> uh, now, I'm supposed to be re representing the, uh, the secular or atheist uh, view. The, the, point, uh, the question is, can a uh, secularist believe in absolutes? Uh, and it seems to me, I don't know what the alternative is. Uh, you know, you've all heard the line, uh, the answer to the, 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 the very emphatic claim that there are no absolutes except that one. Uh, uh, it, it doesn't get you very far, and so I think we're uh, stuck with the idea that there are uh, uh, things out there that exist uh, apart from uh, our likes or dislikes, and, and that we have to uh, use our heads to go out and figure out what they are through all kinds of methods. Uh, but it seems to me, like I said, the law of identity doesn't really have to depend on anything. Uh, there's no alternative to it, and, and, and to even attempt to come up with one is, uh, quickly leads to a collapse in uh, absurdity. Uh, in fact, if I can be a little contentious here, uh, and you'd probably be disappointed if I wasn't, uh, maybe the, the religious outlook, again, I'll, I'll be deliberately provocative, offers a weaker foundation to this idea of an independent, uh, immutable reality based on the law of identity, that namely that a thing is what it is, that a thing has a nature. Uh, now, the idea that a thing has a nature should not come as any surprise. I mean, imagine something existing that has no nature. Again, it's one of those empty ideas. I mean, to, to be is to be something specific. And there's no, there's no uh, sense in the idea of a, a sort of general existence, that a thing is, but it doesn't have any characteristics. I mean, to be is to have characteristics. Now, that seems like a pretty solid beginning to, of knowledge, and as a guide uh, to your uh, discovery of what things are in particular. But uh, I'm a little worried about the idea that there's a, there's a being that could uh, change something's nature at will. Again, I'm back to my provocative uh, stance here. Uh, and I'll, I'll just plant that, and you're welcome to bring, that, bring this up. Uh, this isn't supposed to be a debate on theology, and I don't really mean it to be, but I figured I'll, Marshall probably be disappointed if I didn't throw a grenade or two. You know. As Mencken said, you know, it's helpful every once in a while for someone to throw a dead cat into the temple. <laughs> and I'm, I'm a fan of Mencken, so I'm stuck with that. Uh, anyway, I mean, the law of identity seems a lot more shaky if there's a supreme being that could uh, ch change the, the nature of something any time uh, the being wanted to. So I'll, I'll leave it at that, just to, again, to be... Uh, be a troublemaker. Now, now to the question at hand: Can relativism bring peace? Well, this is interesting. I mean, uh, if we if we take relativism very seriously, uh, why should we assume peace is is a desideratum? I mean, uh, that's just up for you to decide. For relativists, uh, some people want peace. Some people some people see peace as a value, and some people don't think peace is a value. So. Uh, if a relativist were to argue that relativism is what we need because that leads to tolerance, because that leads to peace, you have to ask him why, is, why does he seem to be positing peace and tolerance as, as absolute goods? Uh, he seems to be smuggling in some absolutism there, and we ought to call him on it and make him demonstrate why peace is better than uh, war, or, and why tolerance is better than intolerance. Uh, so we shouldn't let him get away with that. I mean, I think generally peace and tolerance is good. I mean. Uh, 
fighting in the streets makes it hard to accomplish other things that we all want to accomplish. So uh, I have no trouble accepting that uh, generally. Uh, not that I won't tolerate everything. Or I don't think we should tolerate everything. Things are some things are beyond tolerance. Uh, state schools, I think, are beyond tolerance. But, uh, <clears throat> but, uh, but generally, those are those are fine. And uh, but make the I think we should make the relativists prove that those are things to be desired, and uh, they seem to be. Uh, like I said, smuggled in as desirable things, but uh, I don't think they can really defend them very uh, staunchly without uh, giving up their, the bigger uh, the bigger point they want to make, namely that uh, we shouldn't assume that there are, there is uh, truth and good to be discovered. That that's something that is left to each person's you know own will and decision. <clears throat> so it seems to me we can make a very strong case that. Uh, we have a better chance of, of uh, civility and peace if we accept that the, that uh, our the statements we make regarding truths, both in the metaphysical and the moral sense, uh, can be civilly discussed and, and eventually resolved through uh, argumentation and through discovery. And uh, uh, and an argument between two relativists seems to me get, gets nowhere because there's no court of appeal, there's no reality to appeal to to see who, who in fact is. Uh, speaking more accurately, and who is speaking uh, uh, less accurately? Uh, so the, it seems to me a real, the real key to peace is to a commitment to the idea that uh, uh, there is an independent reality, that the relativists are wrong. It's not just a matter of whatever you want to decide. Uh, that these things can be discussed in rational terms and through uh, argumentation, through gathering of evidence, etc., those kinds of things. We can eventually resolve disputes because we have a, a common method, namely reason, and a common court of appeal, namely that real world, and that at least holds out the uh, potential for uh, uh, resolution. And that engenders, in my view, a spirit of toleration and, and peace rather than this, uh, this irreconcilable route of relativism where in the end we both stamp our feet at each other and say no I'm uh, it's what I believe and, and you say what you believe and then and then we both say okay we're both right even though we're making absolutely contradictory uh, statements at that point if we can't go our separate ways the only recourse left to us may be fisticuffs because again there's no method or court of appeal to resolve the disputes uh, I will stop at that point and uh, hopefully I said enough to uh, provoke some discussion Thank you, Sheldon. I think I'm here, so I'm going to keep on going with the next introduction, following your line. Um, Herb Titus, Herbert Titus. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Herb is a lawyer, an author, and an educator. He has taught constitutional law at the state universities of Oregon, Oklahoma, and Colorado, and at the private institutions of Oral Roberts University and Regent University in Virginia. He was the founding dean of the College of Law and Government at Regent, serving in that capacity from 1987 through July 1993. He has written numerous articles and book chapters on a variety of legal and public policy topics. In 1996, Mr. Titus was a candidate in 39 states for Vice President of the United States on the U.S. Taxpayers' Party ticket. He, uh, in fact, has a radio program now, I think, in Virginia Beach that broadcast uh, several times a week. He and his wife Marilyn, who is with us also, hi Marilyn, 
I have been married for 35 years and have four children and nine grandchildren. And both of these gentlemen, by the way, have, uh, have uh, writings and books and so forth on our tables over here. So would you welcome Herbert Titus, please? Wally, thank you very much. It is a pleasure for me to come and to be on this panel with uh, Sheldon Richmond. As I tell Sheldon, I read his articles all the time and I find myself more often than not in agreement with him. Uh, on this, though, we disagree. Sheldon went to the dictionary to find a definition of relativism. I went to the White House and found the personification of relativism. <laughs> William Jefferson Clinton. Uh, as Sheldon has so ably discussed the philosophical and metaphysical ramifications of relativism, and yes, indeed, we would have some differences with regard to uh, how God figures in all of that. Instead of joining him in a discussion on that, perhaps we can do that at the question and answer period. I'd like to talk about the political and legal implications of relativism. A couple of weeks ago, President Clinton addressed the issue of human equality at the annual human rights dinner for the so-called gay, lesbian, bisexual, and uh, transgendered people in America. At this dinner, he issued a new Emancipation Proclamation. The old ideas of sexuality must go. It is time, proclaimed our president, to redefine, and I'm quoting, redefine in practical terms the immutable idea of, in of equality. And of course, what he had in mind was that with this redefinition of the immutable idea of equality, homosexual sodomy would be equal to heterosexual monogamy. And according to what he practices, fornication and adultery are the equivalent to covenant marriage. And I would assume that many of his supporters would also say that all sexual relations are equal without regard to sex, age, or species. If you doubt what I say, let me also quote to you from our president's statement that we need to expand our, quote, imagination in how we should live. Now, I believe that President Clinton believes that if we do not voluntarily expand our imagination, then it's time to enlist the power of the state to expand it for us. Indeed, I believe his speech at this particular dinner was a prelude to adding sexual orientation to the civil rights laws, which would be enforced by the nation, making sexual orientation one of those forbidden bases for discrimination along with race, sex, etc. But it was not just a speech to add sexual orientation to the civil rights laws to be enforced by the government. Rather, it is part of a larger ideological agenda designed to dismantle the nation's charter. He would take the provision of the Declaration, we hold these truths to be self-evident, and he would change it to, we think that these following opinions are reasonable. 
he would take the language and instead of a nation built upon self-evident truths revealed by God, he would rebuild this nation upon reasonable opinions of an enlightened elite. Then he would take the words that all men are created equal, and he would retranslate that to every living human animal ought to be treated equally in as many ways as imaginable. Instead of a God-created legal and political order of equality among human beings, we must, according to Clinton, have an economic, social, and sexual egalitarian order as the elite imagination would have it be. Instead of the language that we are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, he would retranslate that to that everyone's claim to life, liberty, and happiness should be tolerated, unless that claim conflicts with better claims of others, provided, however, that all claims of right should be subordinate to compelling state interests. So instead of a God-given and defined right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, he is calling for a new order of forced toleration where God-given rights are to be trumped by man-invented rights are overridden by compelling state interests. A relativistic, evolving legal and political order for an absolute, unchanging, godly legal and political order. Now, how is this transformation of American society to occur through the transformation of the minds of Americans? What Clinton has declared is a war against Americans who believe, like her founders did, that there are absolute unchanging rules imposed on man by Almighty God. Indeed, I believe he has declared war against God and against God's law, elevating his own imagination above God's revelation. How will he wage this war? What will be the means that he chooses? Through America's schools. How will he wage this war? What will be the means that he chooses through America's schools? Again, let me quote to you from Clinton's speech. He said that most people, as they grow older, become somewhat limited in their imaginations. Not surprising, Hillary Clinton is heading up a national movement for daycare. The younger you get them, the more likely that you can reshape their imaginations. I believe the national testing, goals 2000, school to work, all of the national education programs are really designed for the purpose of imposing a unitary political ideology upon America. Now, Barry Lynn, of course, supports this. If you remember what he said about the Establishment Clause, as he says, all the Establishment Clause forbids is a religious uniformity or a religious ideology upon the people. But it doesn't forbid imposing a political ideology upon the people. Indeed, he likened education to the training of the military. And let me assure you that when someone enters the military, that in order to be an effective soldier, you have to think like a soldier. You have to live and be a soldier if you're going to be an effective soldier, and that, of course, is precisely what a statist education is designed to do, 
is for people who are educated there to think and be as the state would have them be. Now, this is not the first time that a political leader has proposed and implemented an educational agenda to force upon a nation's people a worldview dictated by the powerful on those who don't hold power. In 1786, Thomas Jefferson wrote the statute for religious freedom. And quoting from Jefferson, he said, it is the impious presumption of legislators and rulers, civil and ecclesiastical, who being themselves but fallible and uninspired men, have assumed dominion over the faith of others, setting up their own opinions or modes of thinking as the only true and infallible, and as such endeavoring to impose them on others, have established and maintained false religions over the greatest part of the world and through all time. It is not new for nations' political leaders to attempt to impose a uniform ideology upon the people that they might better control those people. In Jefferson's time, that was precisely what the political agenda was in nations all over the world. Now, what was Jefferson's ammunition against this political homogeneity? Did he argue that it didn't work? No, it only worked too well. Did he come up with a bunch of statistics to show what was happening to the people, that it was not cost-efficient, or that people weren't performing well on the tests that might be administered to see whether or not they were learning what they were to be taught? No, he opposed it for one simple reason. It was wrong. And the basis upon which he relied to show that it was wrong was that it was contrary to God's created order. You remember the language of that great statute. It still appears on the statute books in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Well aware that Almighty God created the mind free. You see, he began with the proposition that God created the heavens and the earth and all creatures in it, including all human beings. And he created the mind according to the law of freedom. And that for a civil ruler to coerce the minds of men was a violation of that law. Jefferson went on to say even God himself, even the holy author of our religion, did not coerce man to believe the truth that God offered to it. How dare impious rulers do what God himself would not do? From this foundational principle, based upon the law of God, he came up with three principles by which all nations should govern themselves. Principle number one, that there should be no taxation to support the propagation of opinions of any kind not just religious opinions, but of any kind of opinions. He called it sinful and tyrannical, both a violation of God's moral law and a violation of God's law for nations. That's what makes it sinful and tyrannical. He went on to state that not even school vouchers was consistent with the law of God. Some of you perhaps do not know 
but that the school voucher system was the dominant educational system in America. If you look, for example, at the Massachusetts Constitution, dated 1784, you will see a Puritan form of school vouchers. It's interesting to me today that people who abhor the Puritans are actually walking with the Puritans who supported school vouchers. If you don't believe me, look at the first few sections of Article I of the Massachusetts Constitution. The difference between the Puritan school voucher and the proposed school vouchers today is that the person didn't send his money to Washington for it to be laundered and sent back to the parents to spend. It was far more efficient. All that had to be done was that the parent could take the money and give it to the teacher of their choice. Jefferson said, even that violates the law of God because it interferes with the parent's choice not to spend money for a teacher. Homeschoolers, you don't have to pass money from the father to the mother or the mother to the father in order to homeschool. Jefferson understood the law of liberty of the mind. The second principle he set forth was that there was no authority for the civil ruler to impose a test of religious orthodoxy upon any civil office holder. That particular principle led to the prohibition against religious tests that we find in Article 6 of the United States Constitution. It was not for the civil government to determine what is orthodox Christian faith. It was for the church to determine and the people to determine. The civil government had no jurisdiction over religious orthodoxy. The third principle under which he op operated was that the civil government has absolutely no jurisdiction over the minds of men. This is the language of Jefferson. He said that the opinions of men are not the object of civil government, nor under its jurisdiction. Obviously, a tax-supported educational system takes the position that indeed education is the object of government. The minds of men are the object of government, and the government, of course, exercises jurisdiction through civil bureaucrats called teachers who are representing the government when they walk into the classroom. It's interesting that in today's regime, according to Barry Lynn, a teacher can't express a religious opinion. Only a student can in a tax-supported government schoolroom today. So a student who has a religious opinion never gets reinforced by the teacher. Only those students who have non-religious opinions would be reinforced. Now, James Madison explained this in his great remonstrance in which he supported Jefferson's bill for establishing religious freedom, and he put it in the language of Article I, Section 16 of the Virginia Constitution. You can still see this language in that document, although they've added a whole bunch of relativistic stuff following it, where it says, Religion are the duty that we owe to our Creator enforceable by reason and conviction, but not by force or violence. You see, both Madison and Jefferson understood that true liberty 
begins first with identifying those duties that God has exclusively reserved to himself. Those duties that God has ordained in his revelation that can only be enforceable by reason and conviction, not by force or violence. Or if you want to get theological about it, those duties that only the Holy Spirit has authority to enforce and not what the sword of the civil ruler has to enforce. This particular principle can be traced back to the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke 20, 25, where he said, Render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and unto God what belongs to God. Those duties that we owe that can only be enforced by reason and conviction belong exclusively to God. Only those other duties that God has ordained can also be enforced by force and violence belong to the civil ruler. Clinton's relativistic worldview must be imposed by force he must declare war upon the American people for his view of the world is contrary to God's reality. And any other political leader who holds to the view that man's imagination should be lifted up over God's revelation must ultimately use the power of the state because the people upon whose heart is written the truth will simply not voluntarily follow such a leader. So relativism never brings peace. It only brings war. Only by God's law limiting the jurisdiction of state will peace and harmony be restored to America. We'd like to take this time for a question and answer, and we're making a special offer right now. For those of you who have not yet participated at that microphone, please feel free to do so first. And those of you who still have questions and would like some answers to those questions, um, you may respond or ask those after those others have uh, asked their questions, if that makes sense. Please state your name and your uh, place of origin. My place of origin? Well, directly before this conference. <laughs> uh, Tony Moe from Central Pennsylvania. Come on, Tony, where were you? Alien. I have a comment to make on, on the question, which, which I think is, has been eloquently answered, uh, that um, relativism necessarily leads to war rather than peace. Uh, we should note, I think, that it is being sold in the schools under the rubric of diversity training um, under, under the mistaken notion that it produces peace rather than war. And uh, I think it's uh, ex uh, expected that people's commitment to any set of beliefs will be so weakened that they won't be willing to fight for anything. Uh, however, what it does is simply liberate desire and we revert to a Hobbesian condition of a war of all against all in which uh, simply the powerful enslave the less powerful. Uh, but I think um, <clears throat> while it's certainly the case that one can um, determine objective moral standards simply on the, base, on the basis of anal 
an analysis of human nature, as Aristotle, for instance, instance tried to do. I think, uh, Mr. Richmond, you have uh, a, a certain difficulty in the same way that someone who was a Hobbesian would have a difficulty finding some basis for an obligation to live up to the contract that one has made if one is in a position to be able to get away with violating that contract or abrogating the contract. Uh, so too, you may have a set of moral values uh, objectively rooted in human nature. And at the same time, you still have the question, what is the source of the obligation to live that good life, to renounce vice, and to practice virtue without some sort of divine sanction. It would seem to me that it would be, I, I'm not adamant about this, I haven't made up my mind fully about it, but it would be difficult to make a, course, a, a case for that obligation, even though one could perhaps understand uh, to a great extent what a good life is. Thank you. I'll just be very quick. You ask a question that obviously you could write books and books and books about and, and, and therefore talk about for hours and hours, and I am not a uh, uh, professional philosopher who's working every day in, in these areas, so I, you know, I'll answer in that spirit, uh, quickly just suggest my approach. I mean, I, uh, I think uh, the obligation comes out of the quest for the good life, I mean, and, and again, I, I can't endow this with a lot of detail at this point. But um, uh, you're right, this was Aristotle's uh, mission in part, and, uh, and I, think that was the, I think that's a fruitful route to pursue, even if it hasn't been completed, but I, but I think that my hunch is that's the direction to go. Um, my name is Stephen McGarvey. I'm from Bluemont, Virginia, and um, my question is from Mr. Richmond. Um, it's similar in the vein to the last question, which is, uh, and I don't ask this to be confrontational, I'm genuinely curious, how can you say that we can know an absolute truth if you don't believe that there is a God that has ordained that absolute truth? If you say, you, you seem to be saying relativism is wrong, well, what is your standard if you don't have a God who sets the standards. Thank you. Well, as I, as I try to suggest, and this, you're gonna, I hope this doesn't become too autobiographical for me. But the, <laughs> the, um, as I tried to suggest, it seems to me any other uh, starting point than, than an objective uh, uh, reality, frame of reference, is a non-starter. I mean, it just uh, it doesn't get off the ground. Uh, it, it, again, to, to, to attack this idea that there is a uh, independently existing reality, uh, you have to smuggle in, uh, uh, quote, objectivist uh, uh, assumptions to attack it, and w in which case, you know, you're, you're then doing what Aristotle said you're doing if you try to attack the law of identity. It's a non-starter. You don't, you, your system never gets going. So I don't, I don't, I think the, I think existence is sufficient in that sense to, to, uh, for us to begin building Knowledge about uh, what exists. I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't see what's missing. And uh, and I'm not talking about moral values now or the moral life. I'm, uh, I don't see what's just in terms of uh, trying to get a handle on on uh, you know what the nature of reality is like. I don't see what's missing from this this picture I've tried to draw. Namely, the starting point is uh, there's got to be a real world out there because anything else 
collapses and self-contradictions. So that's that's the only route left, and it seems to me that's that's enough to get your get your system going. Uh, Lorenzo Gastiniaga, Baltimore, Maryland. My question is for both gentlemen. Uh, number one, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that both of you uh, believe in both natural law, that there are natural laws that if you tamper with, you may run into deep trouble, number one. Number two, uh, referring to Mr. Titus's uh, quoting of uh, our <coughs> president, um, it seems that his attempts uh, and his policies and those who think like him are actually an assault on tolerance which can destroy civilized society. Please comment. Well, our founders understood that there was such a thing as natural law, but they did not build the nation on that foundation. That's the reason why, if you look at the first paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, they used the term law of nature rather than natural law. Law of nature, as is articulated in Blackstone's commentaries, is God's actual, real, actual will revealed in nature, rather than as Blackstone also states, natural law, which is man's best understanding of God's will revealed in nature. They understood the distinction between God's actual revelation and man's best understanding. Now obviously, whenever a man acts, or a human being acts, uh, you see natural law in action, because that's based upon that person's best understanding. But one would never substitute a person's understanding, no matter how well-educated, how well-trained, for the actual revelation itself. With regard to the question of toleration, our founders rejected toleration. If you look at Article 1, Section 16 of the Virginia Constitution, you will see that they began with a rule of religious toleration, which was essentially this, that you could freely exercise religion so long as you didn't disturb the social order. Or another way of putting it, if you want to put it in modern terms, is that you could freely exercise religion unless there was an overriding compelling state interest. Now today, we have a regime of religious toleration, which in fact means that those who are intolerant will not be tolerated. That's the danger of toleration, is that ultimately there will be some who will not be tolerated. Just a quick word about toleration. I know we don't have a lot of time. Uh, toleration today has turned into uh, the idea of approval. I think the, uh, the people that uh, Herb's talking about have an interest in, in having smuggled in that additional meaning to the word, but I don't think that's what the word originally meant. It, it, and in, term, in political terms, it shouldn't mean that. I mean, you, it seems to me someone who does something that you don't approve of, even deeply morally disapprove of, but who's not using violence, fraud, in other words, not violating anyone's rights, should have that, his rights should still be respected under law. And that's, I think, what generally was meant by the idea of toleration. We weren't going to persecute, politically persecute, or even privately persecute through uh, physical force someone who does something that you disapprove of, assuming that person is now, again, like not violating rights, not using violence, not using uh, harassment, or, you know, not doing things which are defined in the criminal code. Uh, those people should be left alone. You can ostracize them. You can use all sorts of voluntary ways to show your disapproval, you know, not deal with the person, etc. 
but it's tolerance or toleration if legally that person's still permitted to be at liberty. And, that, and assuming that's the contribution of the uh, American political thinking was that those people were not going to be jailed or, or you know, beaten into submission until they crossed the line and actually committed what we think of as an actual crime. Hi, Anthony Santelli, uh, Fairfax, Virginia. This question is directed towards Professor Richmond. Don't, it, don't promote me. <laughs> <laughs> it, it seems that you draw a distinction between the primacy of reality and the primacy of consciousness, and it seems that you come on the side of the primacy of reality. Now, as, as a um, believer in God, um, I believe that the consciousness of God existed first, and then he spoke reality into existence. <clears throat> in, in light of the latest uh, theories of quantum mechanics um, that seem to question you know, reality in, that, in the sense as we seem to perceive it, um, how does this uh, confront, I guess, a more, since the promise of reality would more an atheist view of things, and secondly, uh, if reality came first, then where do you get free will from, and do you believe in free will or not? Uh, all good questions. Uh, I had a feeling quantum mechanics was going to come up, come up at some point. Uh, and I'm not an expert in quantum mechanics, but and, and we're also very short on time, luckily for me. Uh, uh, yeah, there are certainly uh, strange things that go on at the quantum level. I mean, I've done a little reading in this, so I have some sense of uh, there's some very interesting things that go on there, but, but uh, we can still debate whether whether uh, uh, whether theories about what go on there are true or not. Notice how that's still within the context of objectivity. Um, it's not whatever you decide is going on at the quantum level is, is good enough, you know, for no matter what you decide is, is true. We can still debate and test and see what uh, seems to be more in accordance with uh, the truth and, and what uh, seems to be less consistent. So even that debate where things are going on, and maybe we need terms now to identify things that we haven't yet we don't have good terms for yet. I mean, it's, it's obviously different down there, but uh, uh, the point is it still seems to be within the context because we, we, have, we talk about how, uh, you know, the theories of quantum mechanics are constantly upheld by the various uh, experiments that are, uh, that are, put, that are put on uh, by, by scientists. So uh, we can still talk about the truth or falsity of that, even though what goes on there doesn't seem to be exactly like what's going on at this level, at the macro, uh, the macro level. Uh, I'm going to have to stop there because I'm getting the hook. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, <quite> all right. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh